Today we are in week six of a sermon series. It's the Red Letter Sermon Series. This is the first time we've done this in the fall where we just have a, a sermon series that focuses all on the red letters of Jesus. And today is the same thing. We're in the Sermon on the Mount this year, uh, and we're going to look in two more passages today about how they're connected to each other and everything else God has ever done before and since. And it's only going to take me four hours. So buckle in. Uh, just kidding. Uh, I am interested to see what the, the art in the balcony produces today, because this this kind of a, a different sort of sermon for <laughs> to draw art for. And we'll all see. How about you pray with me, please, uh, before I get started? Holy Spirit, we need your guidance in all kinds of decisions in our lives. Lord, this is no different today. I need your guidance to speak your words, to speak the sermon that you want our people to hear, um, that would convict or teach or correct or help us understand each other or you a little bit more. Lord, I ask that your words would come out of my mouth, not mine. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay, so today, like I said, we have two passages, and my sermon is called The Only Righteous Judge. I'm not to the point where I'm coming up with like creative sermon titles yet, so that's where we're at. Uh, we're in Matthew 5, verse 17 through 20, and then Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Uh, I'm just going to start by reading Matthew 5, verse 17 through 20. Verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So this passage is one of the classic passages that just seems so like, how could we possibly just do what Jesus means he must, mean some, he must not mean that we should really listen to him, that we should really attempt to follow this teaching. That's the way I was raised to think about this. And actually, once you get in and understand what he's saying, it's, it's not that way. <laughs> it's, uh, the Holy Spirit helps you to follow Jesus in everything you do anyway. But specifically in this passage, it's not some impossible standard that Jesus sets out for his people. Jesus is telling, telling his followers that he isn't starting something brand new. It's connected to a lot that came before it. Right? Jesus fulfills all the works of God. So verse 17 says that. When Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, that means all of it. Uh, this is the scripture of Jesus and his contemporaries. When you use the words law and prophets like that together, it means everything God has said and done before is fulfilled in him. This is an authority and an importance that no one has had the right to claim before. You can see why it would be so offensive to the people that didn't listen to him. Amen. The Hebrew word for law is Torah, right? This word carries a meaning like instruction or keeping and was viewed, uh, I said the wrong word, instruction or teaching, uh, and uh, was viewed by the people of God as a gift and an honor to keep. 
To obey the commands of the, to of the Torah was to participate in the community of the people of God. Everything from Lex Talionis to animal rights, Lex Talionis, what Christina preached last week, or a few weeks ago, to animal rights, to purity parameters, to sacred rhythms, to holy architectural dimensions. All of these things were included in the law, in the Torah, the instruction that was a gift from God to the people of Israel. It said way more about the lawgiver than it ever did about what the people are. The prophets here, right, so we have the law and the prophets. The prophets here refers really to everything else in the Old Testament. This was the Bible of Jesus and his contemporaries. From history books to wisdom literature to the actual prophetic books, those with huge staying power in the Jewish faith were often identified as prophets, even if they never spoke prophecy. By God's choosing, they played a big role in Israel's story, and so they were considered prophets. Like I was saying, if you, Jesus is saying that he fulfills everything God has done before, and then he sets the stage for everything else that God will do ever, right? in the rest of the red letters. What does it even mean for him to fulfill the Old Testament, though? Right? It means that everything God said up to this point, God is fulfilling in Jesus. Jesus' ministry, teachings, and mission uh, stick together with and find their roots in the Old Testament scriptures. I think I have a slide for that one uh, that says Jesus is... Where I lost it now. Uh, his ministry, teachings and mission stick together with and find their roots in the Old Testament. He acts like a Hebrew prophet, doing signs and speaking truth to power. It sticks together with the Old Testament. He is the promised Hebrew Messiah. He's come from the root of Jesse. He is the promised person who God would send to make it all right again. His roots, the roots of his ministry are in the Old Testament, right? Jesus fulfills, not invalidates, uh, the Old Testament. He doesn't envision himself as starting a new religion, but as the whole goal and purpose that God had for the world. Uh, let's read verses 18 and 19. For truly, not the small, uh, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Again, this sounds like a really harsh condemnation, a really strict thing that we have to stick to. And my shirt has mixed fabrics in it, right? Like I, I have shrimp sometimes. Like we don't, we don't listen to every law in the Old Testament for lots of good reasons, at least for my, myself. But the point is that this sounds really strict until you dive in and understand. Amen. What God set up before still matters. That's the point of this middle part. What God set up before matters. When it comes down to interpreting every last instruction in the Torah and wondering whether we apply it today, this is when we defer to the words of Jesus. Right after this passage, in the next six sections, Jesus will take six of the very important, distinctive, like religious, ethical standards for Jewish uh, religious ethics, and he will reveal the kingdom of God update to them. Right? Maybe you remember that graph that Tiana showed when she preached in the first week of this series, where it compared Jesus and Moses, all the things that they did for the people of God, all the ways that Jesus kind of fashioned himself like a new Moses. This is what's going on here. Uh, Jesus told his audience that he was on the same kind of mission as Moses, except that he was also God, right? So like a slight difference there, just a little, little change. 
Uh, but anyway, Moses' authority and God's instructions are what comes out of the mouth of Jesus when he speaks. Moses' authority and God's instructions come out of the mouth of Jesus. This is another time where two words together mean all that there is, right? The law and the prophets mean everything God has said before. And in verse uh, 18, we have heaven and earth. The idea that the place where God lives and the place where people dwell, until those things die, until those things are no more, with the implicit assumption that that's not a thing, like there can never not be a place where God is and a place where his people are, until those things go away, nothing in the law will fall off. Nothing in the law will fall, pass away either. So his mission is attached to the Old Testament. It is hugely important that we learn from, listen to, read the Old Testament. That's not my main point for today, but it's a good one. Um, this is why his threat seems to be so harsh. God's words matter. The Old Testament matters. Right? Whenever we get to talking about the actions that a Christian might or should do, many of us may start to get nervous or anxious. I'm among that group, worried about hearing a sermon that talks about good deeds as the way into heaven. Right? A sermon that normalizes legalism, that the obedience to God, to the letter of the law, is the way we know we're right with God. The insecurity behind that question, am I right with God, is what fuels legalism in people. I think that I have that on a slide too. Just that question of wondering for yourself, am I right with God? This is something that we all have to reckon with when we come to our faith, whether we decide to accept it or decide to walk away or we you know, move out of the house when we become an adult and we stop going to church with our parents. Whatever, whatever it is that you have to reckon with, you need to ask that question. I, I guess I don't know if you need to, but you probably will ask that question. How do I know? Am I right with God? What do I need to do? Do I need to change anything? Do I need to follow him? Do I need to X, Y, Z thing? Do I need to give this thing up? This question is something we all face. It's part of reckoning with who you've been and what you really need to repent from. Thankfully, this passage isn't the only thing or the last thing that Jesus ever said. Right? Jesus doesn't stop teaching at this. If this was all Jesus ever said, my shirt wouldn't have mixed fabrics. Like We would be listening to uh, the Old Testament food laws and purity laws and ways of being as, as normative for our lives rather than something that tells us something about God. Right? That's my view toward, for Christians' view toward the law is that this tells us something about God, something that mattered to God that he called out, he spoke about. He said, this thing is important. I need you to pay attention to it. So something of that matters for today. That's what I'm saying that Jesus is saying to his audience. I was trying to like not make this too heady or jumping all over, and I couldn't. I'm sorry. Please come with me. I, like, I'm, I can do me really well. So and I appreciate you all who give me good words. And Anyway, okay. All right. Jesus isn't instructing his followers to go back and just do exactly what the law says to do, right? He doesn't envision a simple return to the Torah, or rather remaining in the Torah, because the people he's talking to haven't actually deviated from it at that point, right? They left their house that morning in a, either a state of ritual cleanliness or impurity, and walked in certain ways and avoided certain things and people, and th they lived this life entirely for the common person, but especially for the religious leaders uh, of their community. To obey the commands of Jesus is to obey the Torah, 
That's what I want us to take away uh, from, from this moment. All that God had said up to that point was fulfilled in Jesus. And so his teachings are the way that the people are to obey the Torah moving forward. I know I don't have to convince you to listen to Jesus here today, but this is why we do listen to him, right? We just got done singing the song, Lord, how we love you. There's nothing else like my heart wants. You're the thing my heart adores. And Leasa, I don't see you. Oh, she's probably teaching. That, oh, there she is. Hey, Leasa, that prayer you prayed, we can't do anything without you and we don't want to anyway. Like, if I think of that every day, that's, that's faith to me. That, like, that's all I need. I can't do anything without you and I don't want to anyway. So I know I don't need to convince us to listen to Jesus, but this is why we attach to him. This is why the whole story of Israel is fulfilled in him. And this is what we're invited to. This is what we're invited to. All of Jesus' words are majorly important. Right? This is really the driving force behind our idea to make up a sermon series like this. That at the end of the day, cultural questions, theology, uh, practical advice, unison cultural questions, all those things still matter. They're very important. But the words of Jesus, there's just something about the simple words of Jesus that we need to pay attention to. That we need our hearts to stop, to give that heart check, that... Um, that stress test, like Tiana was saying, that has just been a, such a beautiful metaphor for this series, is that we think we got it, but actually lean in. Like, do you really trust that God's got it? Do you pray? Do you see people the way Jesus sees them? Right? These, do you crave righteousness? Those are the messages of the past few sermons that are just, they're not that hard. They're not that like, complicated, uh, but we just need to take the time to see whether we're obeying the Holy Spirit in it or if we're going about it our own ways. Uh, in other places, of course, Jesus is reported as answering the crowd a question about the most important commandment. All right, I have Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40 up on the screens for us uh, where we can just see what Jesus said. Again, this is some more red letters, but it's not the Sermon on the Mount. This is probably something most of us could recite in our sleep, right? He quotes from two places in the Old Testament, and he's saying, here's how you listen to me. Here's how you listen to me by listening, or here's how you listen to the Torah by listening to me, right? Uh, uh, someone questioned in verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Amen. So this is said in other ways throughout the Old Testament. I picked this one because it has that law and prophets that Jesus says the hook on which the law and the prophets hang is loving God and loving neighbors. Amen. So instead of thinking of this as some impossible standard that, oh, we need Jesus to complete. Like that, that's not what he's trying to do in the Sermon on the Mount, I don't think. He's saying, obey me, follow me, and this is how you know you're good with God, right? Uh, we talk about reasons of coming to Jesus. Uh, you know, some people came to Jesus because they saw, uh, what's, the, what's the one play? The, oh man, oh, heaven's gates and hell's flames. Have anyone heard of that? Uh, I didn't even mean to talk about that. But just the idea of like being worried about judgment, being worried about the eternal 
you know, conscious torment of the damned, right? Like this idea of coming to Jesus because you don't want that. You just want fire insurance, right? That's a, <laughs> that's, that's a thing. Oh, so so that's, that can be genuine. That, what I'm trying to say is that can be a genuine coming to the Lord and the Holy Spirit starts to work on you and grow you and change you and shift you and then you, you stick to this life because you see what it's good for or how God has saved you or how God has delivered you from things. It's, it, can, it can be totally okay to come to God for an immature or bad reason, but I trust the Holy Spirit to make it good, to make it grow, to make you grow. There's nothing about it that we at the church can do, right? There, it's the Holy Spirit and you participate in you becoming more like Jesus. The, uh, so that, that law and the prophets thing, right, it, it clues us in for, uh, for those of us who have never, may have never been connected to Jewish law, culture, or heritage uh, to know that the Old Testament is important. It is essential. It is normative for our lives to read, learn from, and study, and listen to. Certainly, we're separated by two millennia. So we have a lot to learn. We have a lot to, to look back on and to see what God has done. Seen rightly, the law being fulfilled by Jesus and our obedience to his great command is enough for our relationship with the law. So this is not my main point, but my on-the-way point is uh, there's more to the Old Testament. I have a slide for this. There's more to the Old Testament than Psalms, Noah's Ark, prophecies, and violence. There's more going on. <laughs> it talks about the full counsel of who God is. You see who God has been when he delivered Israel from countless adversaries or when he didn't show up until the, very, you know, the 11th hour, the last second for so many psalms. Or sometimes the psalmist is left out of hope. There, actually, I think there's one psalm where God just doesn't even show up at all. You don't think that's necessary and important for reading when you turn off the news today? Like, I, it is... It is ridiculous to think that we could just follow the New Testament and not understand its roots in the Old Testament. And so again, not my main point, but that's my on-the-way point. Read, read the Old Testament. Learn from that. Um, <laughs> uh, sorry, team. All right. With all of that, right, we are finally up to verse 20, okay? And uh, I'll reread verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He tells them to be more righteous than the ones who are experts on righteousness. That the common person who has to think about you know, this menial labor job or has to worry about this bill or like they don't have the time training or desire at all to learn the way that the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law have spent their, their lives fashioning themselves to be righteous. And Jesus says, you got to do way better than the experts or you don't have a chance with me. That's wild. That's a, that's a, that's a hard commandment, right? That's a hard commandment. But I think there's a lot more about legalism going on here than meets the eye. So the religious experts that Jesus so often opposes and makes fun of may have had a lot of reasons that they feel justified in continuing as they are and ignoring Jesus. 
Some of them may be driven by legalism. They decide to follow the law to the very letter so they can know they are righteous. So that when they ask that question, am I right with God? It doesn't matter what God says. I, look, look at my score. I did it. I'm righteous. They want to trust in their own ability. They want to trust in their own interpretation, their own way of being that says, I've done it. This is my, goal. This is my grade. They don't want to trust in the Spirit of God. They don't want to trust that, they, that who they are is the thing that comes first, not what they do. Right? Who they are, the tree that they are, is known by the fruits that they uh, produce. This was never supposed to be a function of the law, of course. Right? We can plug in everything Christine said in her sermon last month right here. Right? The, the, do you crave the, the spiritual umami? Right? To remind us, and to say it in my way, I might say that what you do matters to God. Right? It's quite simple. Matthew 5.20 isn't so much about your righteousness score as much as it is about living as if this stuff is true. Not just thinking about it, but doing it. Amen. Think with me for a minute about the story that we say governs our existence, right? If, if you say you're a Christian, you live under a, a very, very beautiful story, okay? The infinite yet imminent God who created all things gave us a job to do, to take care of the world. Humanity failed miserably instantly by taking that power of right and wrong into their own hands. Then this creator of all things gave us a way back to restored relationship with him. And this man, speaking the red letters, is the one who is giving us this invitation. Yes. If you believe Jesus is who he says he is, how could you ever go back to the things that you were doing before? Yes. Not just yes. behaviors and practice. I don't mean like to give us shame. I mean, like, how can you just go back to not knowing Jesus? There's no, thing, there, there's no way to go back to not knowing Jesus. Yes. It reminds me of the parable that's later on in the Gospels. If you found treasure in a field, would you not sell everything you had to go and buy that field quick? If you receive this new lease on life, would you not do everything you can to know God and make him known? Yes. This knowledge of God, this gospel we've received is earth-shattering. Okay? The story that we say governs our life, that's the motivation for righteousness, for obedience, for following Jesus, for listening to him, looking to do good things. There's rewards that's part of that, but that's not, it's the cart before the horse when you go that way. The law was never supposed to simply be a rule book for righteousness. Heart posture is. The law was never supposed to simply be a rule book for righteousness. Heart posture is. The thing that the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus' day and ours is that the thing that they miss is that they depend on themselves and having heard of Jesus, not on Jesus and the Spirit of God. Right? Even strict obedience to God is possible without veering over into legalism. So I want to leave space for that. Um, but legalism is anti-dependent on God. Legalism is, is it's not independent, it's anti-dependent on God. It's living life from Him, not with Him. It's living life from Him, not with Him. This flows really well into our other passage for this morning, which is Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Uh, it's just a page over in my Bible. I'm going to go ahead and read those five verses, and we'll talk about them some more. Uh, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Most famous verse in the Bible, by the way. For, 
things. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eyes. I want us to carry that legalism idea here, right? There's all kinds of applications for what Jesus is saying about hypocrisy and about how uh, Christians in our culture are only known for what they're against, and uh, we tend to be one of the most hateful places sometimes when we should actually be the most loving. That's something out. That's not what I'm talking about today. Think about legalism with me, okay? The problem of legalism is that Jesus is condemning harsh and hypocritical judgment, right? Jesus is saying that you who think you're good, you who think you've got it, you actually have way more reason to not be able to see clearly than that person because you think you're, you're trusting in yourself because you think you've got it. Why doesn't God want us to judge, right? Well, uh, that's God's job. Basically, that's, at the end of it, that's God's job. Humans are quick to find ways to abuse our authority as judges of one another. Um, if you have siblings and you had a little bit of food left when you were a kid and you say one cut, one choose, those are never simple discussions, right? Right? They're always, you might get out the ruler. Like We, have, we always abuse our authority to judge, always. So those weights and measures, like in the first couple of verses, those are from God. Those are his. He's the one who sets the standards. So they shouldn't be used lightly. Right? This is an idea that is central to the forgiveness we ask for from God in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us as we forgive others. Use equal weights and measures with us. Be just with us. I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want God's job. Right? I think of the movies, uh, was it Bruce Almighty? Like, he, the guy's like, I could do your job better than you. And God's like, all right. And it's uh, really like bad and off the wall. You know, it, it's a funny movie. But he's like, he has God's job for a little bit. And it's like, this, this is awful. I can't do it. <laughs> right? And so he comes around. Um, I got to watch the movie again. Um, <laughs> ah, we are. We're, go, we're doing it today. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh we expect God to have equal measures, so it makes sense that he would assign it to us if, if, we're, being, if we're judging. That rec, uh, requirement on us is that we have equal measures. And there's many ways that judging can mean, right? So this is what I want to talk about next. What does he mean by judge, right? Judgment can mean many different things, whether that's like on a moral level, judicial level, uh, governmental like decision level, or else condemnation from God in an ultimate sense. Right? The moral level, that's knowing right from wrong. That's um, deciding not to steal from the store or deciding X, Y, Z thing. That's a moral decision. I think what's in mind here is that ultimate sense, that condemnation. The seat of judgment is reserved for God alone. I think that uh, nobody is talking about legal courts or governmental decisions. It's kind of between those two things, but I think it's about God's ultimate condemnation. There's condemnation for both the speck and the beam should come, uh, shouldn't, okay, start over. Jesus is not asking his followers to tolerate evil or be morally indifferent to it. He is saying that judgment for the speck or the beam, whichever one it is, should never come from a neighbor. It should never come from someone who is completely oriented to love, to support, to care. 
that condemnation is God's job. That conviction is the Holy Spirit's job. All right. Jesus is here laying out the blueprint for a relationship where judgment and correction come from the right place. Correction from the Holy Spirit and judgment from the Father. Right? A seriously obedient to Jesus person knows that judgment is reserved for God alone. That's his job. And whatever uncomfortability they feel around someone is a sign to them that they're not in the right place. Not that they should be condemning the person that they're with for whatever is setting them off. And, and thus condemning them, right? In the picture Jesus is establishing, the one he is correcting stands apart from the one with the speck in their eye. They say, oh, let me come help you, right? You obviously need it. You need, you need what I've got. I know how to do it. But love requires that they stay close to that person in the first place, that they never have the chance to step away, to separate themselves, to compare. That they, the person who is being condemned for judging, for, uh, for condemning, while knowing right from wrong, right, they still obey the rest of the teachings of Jesus to love, care for, and give to the, one that, the people we spend our time with. The righteousness Jesus wants his followers to show has a lot to do with correcting from legalism. The whole point of this passage is that Jesus is teaching his followers not to assume the role that God has kept for himself. The nature of living life together means that we will hurt each other, and if we're really vulnerable, the way a family is vulnerable to each other, then we will hurt each other all the time. Uh, gentle correction, reconciliation, matters of violence or abuse, all those are a different thing. That's not what's going on here. He's talking about condemnation for moral failure or for different positioning towards God. Jesus teaches about those things elsewhere. Here we're just talking about a Christian being self-righteous, condemning their brother and sister. A Christian who trusts that they've got it, who's leaned into obeying the letter of the law, who, who really needs to answer for themselves that question, am I right with God? Amen. The two words for wood in this passage that he uses couldn't be more different things, right? The one is the smallest speck of sawdust, and the other word is a beam, like a beam, that right there. If that's in your eye, you have no case. You have no case. It's ridiculous to think you would have a case to speak about uh, or correct or condemn someone else. He wants them to look at their sin first before they focus on anyone else. And when they look at their sin, when I, when you, when we look at our own sin, we see, I'll never be able to say a word to anyone else. That's, that's the judge not thing. Okay, there's all kinds of times where Jesus like actually speaks condemnation towards people and there's a lot going on and we can get confused if we just take it as a simple meaning. The judge not he's talking about is saying, do not sit there and think you've got it when you have just no reason. You have no standing to sit there and judge. The chance to forsake our sins while leaning into the rest of what Jesus invites us to as his followers is what he asks for his followers to do in this passage. It's actually a really uh, cool connection between these two passages uh, that showed up when I was preparing for today. At the beginning of verse five, uh, 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come. Right, think. Do not spend your time thinking about, don't spend your mental energy in that. Uh, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. He tells them to use their mind, their attention elsewhere. By the end of the passage, we see that he means for them to set their attention on learning from the Old Testament. 
on listening to Jesus for obedience, on trusting the Holy Spirit for the spot of saying, uh, am I right with God? On obeying God through Jesus' own teachings and on living like they really believe the truth of Jesus' name. Like that's what he wants them to set their minds on. He wants them to think about those things. And in Matthew 7, verse 3, he condemns the hypocrite for not paying attention to their own sinfulness, for not using their own mind to take stock of what's going on in their hearts and in their lives when they're so busy with a sign on the corner or giving funny looks to that person who sits there or XYZ thing that we all do all the time. Maybe you're like, you don't, but... We all do those things all the time, things like that all the time. Uh, Jesus is uh, telling them to use their mind to look at their own sinfulness. The people want to nitpick their tiny inconsistencies in their neighbor while not spending any mindfulness or attention on the blatant unrighteousness in themselves. In both passages, Jesus is calling their attention to another way of living. Right? The attention needed in each case is sharp, intense, and it will alter the way that the follower of Jesus goes about every situation they face. Following Jesus is not about turning off the mind you get, that God gave you. It's about creatively sorting out what obedience to these commands looks like for you. It isn't the way Jesus invites us to, so it isn't ultimately life-giving when we lean into legalism, when we answer that question for ourselves, when we don't trust the Holy Spirit to guide us, guard us, and comfort us, that we are with Jesus, right? Legalism turns off our minds. It makes our job so simple as to not really be worth doing. That makes obedience to God something that just, you're missing it if you're living in that, right? Who you are in Christ is the motivation for good works and Christian love of each other, right? This is true righteousness, that spiritual umami from Christine's sermon last month. Now it's our turn to, make, to take these ideas and run them through the lens of our culture. So, uh, and with this I'll conclude. Uh, all of our sermons this far in the series have boiled down to one simple question, right? I mentioned them towards the middle, that uh, do you crave righteousness? Do you pray? Do you trust that Jesus really has it? Do you see people the way Jesus sees them? The question for today is, do you condemn others? In what ways has your own righteousness turned into the beam in your eye? In what way are you leaning into legalism and not leaning into the Holy Spirit for guidance? Wherever you found yourself on this legalism problem, the step of entrance to the kingdom of God is being with Jesus and obeying his teachings. Right? That's the threshold. It's not secured by what you do, but by what was done for you. So pay that mercy forward any chance that you get. But don't leave without wondering about this question. Do you condemn others? What's in the way of you obeying the greatest commandment? Uh, Would you pray with me? Lord, we take time to breathe before you. Thank you for the ways that you've connected our bodies and our brains just so that we can emotionally regulate properly look at you and look at the world around us thank you but I ask that you would uh, convict our hearts that you would reveal to us places and, and spots where we have 
leaned into our own right, righteousness or trusted ourselves to answer the question of, of whether we're right with you. Would you convict us and draw us closer to each other and to you, that we would be unified in the body, that we'd be able to look out for each other and show love the way you asked us to? Would we be known for what we're for rather than what we're against? But I thank you for the chance to spend time in public. Gathered worship uh, is a privilege, and so we're thankful for it, God. I ask that you would uh, keep this family during this week as we go and... Uh, you bring us back to come hang out, have some teen takeover time, um, and harvest party, and all the, all the good things that you're doing at Eunice. And Lord, thank you for them. Um, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.